Good morning, everyone. Man, it's so good to see all of your faces. I'm trying to, with the lights, make out people, but there's a lot of people in the room I don't know, y'all. So I can't wait to get to meet you and hear your story and go on our journey together. Uh, If you are here today for the very first time, we just want to extend a very beautiful and sincere welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us here at New Life Midtown. We are one of eight New Life congregations across our city. And we believe that God has assigned and planted and purposed every single one of us New Life Churches to reach the Pikes Peak region with the good news of who Jesus Christ is. So we welcome you to our family, and we pray today that you meet with God in a very, very special way. And I believe that's going to happen by meeting with these people. We have a pretty phenomenal group of people here at New Life Midtown. I got a couple of quick announcements I want to make for you guys. The first is... Uh, Our first family talk of 2023 is happening here in a couple of weeks. It's going to be on the first Sunday of February. So what is family talk? For some of you who are hearing that and going, I might be be interested in that. So for those of you who have been to family talks in the past, you know that this is New Life's Midtown's form of membership. And this is the place where we establish our culture. This is the place where we galvanize and strengthen our core. This is the place where we talk about visionary components of the church. You'll be some of the first to hear about new changes and developments that are happening here at Midtown. If you have been to a new life next and you sense that the Lord is drawing you and calling you to new life Midtown, you are welcome to join us. I would hope and I would, I would really encourage you to go through Midtown Essentials that is happening if you are able to do that on our uh, Wednesday nights. I think that would be a great next step for you. But we realize that some of you can't do that and you are already sensing the spirit drawing you into the spirit of membership here. So we would like to extend that invitation to you. It's going to be a really good one. We're going to talk about two services. <laughs> um, I think it's time. So... Several months ago, when we collapsed our two services into one, we did that strategically. Uh, We recognized that in a lot of ways, we were forced to go to two services. So for those of you who are new to the family, at the end of 2019, we were actually kind of running these kind of numbers. And um, we said, it's time for us to go to two services. So we began making plans, having several meetings with our core leaders, getting our volunteers in place, and then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, obviously everything was disrupted and everything was disoriented. We took three months off. We went into you know, live services, recorded videos. And when we came back, we immediately went to two services with spatial distancing in the house. And in a lot of ways, we lost a lot of momentum. We lost a, a strong worship environment, a lot of strong engagement. And um, after two years, we've begun building that back. And so we decided as a leadership team in around June or July that we were going to um, help our volunteers. We're going to take our two services, put our energies into one, getting a strong environment and a strong atmosphere again in our corporate sense, grow the house, and then from a place of strength, go back into two services. So I want to go ahead and announce to you that we will be going back to two services the week before Palm Sunday, which is... March 26th, that's the last Sunday of March. So between now and then, we're going to be experiencing some growing pains, all right? Um, We're going to be meeting with, this is actually going to be one of the most important talks that we're going to be focusing at our family talk. We're going to be laying out a plan, um, finding out who can do nine, who can do 11, and we want to move into two services with strength so we don't lose any of the momentum that we've built by the Lord over the past several months, amen? Okay, well, if you're joining us today and you weren't here last week, we started a series last week on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And uh, for those of you guys, who of you have ever done any kind of talk uh, when it relates to the scriptures? Maybe you've led a Bible study. Maybe you've spoken to youth. Uh, maybe you've preached for the masses. Let me just see by way of hands, how many of you guys have done a talk? Ah, oh, look, that's amazing. And so for those of you who've done some kind of talk, I would imagine that you know that the very best way to walk people through the scriptures is not just to give them information. Isn't that right? The very best way to teach and to preach the scriptures is actually to allow God to deal with you first, to allow God to cut you, to allow God to heal you, to allow God to confront you. And a little bit of a secret here, Pastor Jonathan and I, we've been working together for about seven years, and every year we would say, you know, we should probably do the Sermon on the Mount. And then we would look at each other and go, nah, we don't think we're ready for that yet. And next year we'd come along and say, I think the church needs to hear the Sermon on the Mount. we go, no, not yet. So it's time to do the Sermon on the Mount, and I know why we've been putting it off for so long. Y'all, the Lord has been slicing and dicing Pastor Jade into little pieces. I've been dying, y'all. I have been dying. Oh, the fast and the Sermon on the Mount have been killing me in the very best way possible, right? Uh, It hurts so good. It hurts so good. So with all of that wild introduction being said, let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. You are good. And all that you do is good. And you are worth everything that we could possibly give to you. You are worth it all. So we can say, Jesus, have it all. And Lord, I'm asking today that you would do what we always ask you to do. Lord, that you would encounter every single one of us afresh and anew by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. I'm asking that you would unfold the scriptures to us in a way that I never could. Lord, I'm asking that you would form us today, take us another notch, take us deeper into our formation to be people who look like Jesus, who think like Jesus, who react like Jesus, who feel, whose attitudes reflect the attitude of the Christ King Jesus. And Lord, I'm asking that you would prepare us today as we gather together as a group of believers, Lord, that you would equip us and that you would resource us and you would empower us so that we can be launched out of this place to join you in your mission in the world. And I pray it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be starting in Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there with me in your Bibles. We'll go there here in a minute. And just as a way of review, last week we talked about how Jesus announces his kingdom. It's a threefold announcement. Jesus goes about, he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing. When he preaches, he's announcing, hey, you guys, the kingdom of God's here. It's begun. The thing that you guys have waited for for centuries, it's here. It's starting. Because the kingdom is the embodiment of the king and the king is Jesus. And so when Jesus is incarnated in the flesh and he's baptized and he is launched into his public ministry, he says, the thing that all of creation has been on, it's, he, it's just been leaning in, waiting for this moment. Jesus is saying, it's time. The kingdom has begun. And then he goes and he starts calling people. Hey, you, follow me. Hey, you, follow me. Fisherman, follow me. Tax collector, follow me. And people are like, what are we, what are we doing? What are we following you into? And he's like, follow me and I'm going to make you into something that you are not. I'm going to make you into fishers of men. I'm going to make you into representatives and ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Follow me and I will change your life. Follow me and I will orient your life into the way of the kingdom. Follow me and you will look like me. 
So then Jesus begins in chapter 5 to sit down and essentially explain to his disciples, this is what it means to be a disciple. Now, if I were sitting with you and we were in a smaller group and I had a whiteboard, I would ask you this question. And just for the sake of the room and, sake, and for the sake of time, just think about this. Don't, 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 don't you know, blurt these things out, but think about this. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean exactly to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be formed into the image of Jesus? What does it mean to walk in the way of God and to walk in the way of the kingdom of God? Jesus answers that question in the next three chapters. Chapter five, six, and seven is essentially saying, Jesus is saying, if you choose to follow me, your life will look like this. If you choose to love your neighbor like this, your life will look like what I'm about to read in the next few verses here of Matthew chapter 5. So with that, we're just going to read the first three Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, when we start each of these phrases off with this word blessed, there have been so much commentary around this one word. The word is a fascinating word. It's a word called makarios or makarion. And the word makarios here is essentially the word that means lucky or favored or happy. It's a really difficult word to translate in the English because when we say blessed or when we say happy, it can almost seem trite. When we say happy are those who are poor in spirit, some people can take that and mean, like, listen, this, this is a very difficult season that I'm walking through. How can you reduce this to say that I'm just supposed to be happy about this? And for those who are reading this and reading the word blessed, it can almost conjure up this idea that in order for me to earn God's favor, then I've got to kind of move myself and will myself into this sense of being poor or poor in spirit. So I want to define what this word is because in a lot of ways, it sets the course for understanding the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, these nine verses here from 3 to 12, they set the course for understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. So if we get happy and blessed wrong, we get the Beatitudes wrong. And if we get the Beatitudes wrong, we get the rest of the sermon wrong. And if we get the sermon wrong, in a lot of ways, we get the entire gospel wrong. So this is what makarios, or what happy and blessed does not mean. Number one, it does not mean that this is something that you have to work for. Jesus isn't giving us another 10 commandments here. Jesus isn't giving us another set of rules. It's not another form of the law in order for us to measure our righteousness externally. In other words, he's not saying just, just grovel and grit your way into being poor. How do you measure that? How do you know? Oh, am I poor enough in spirit? Am I, am I, am I mourning enough? Am, am, I, am I hungry enough for righteousness? Jesus isn't giving us something to work our way into by another form of external law. Secondly, it's not a promise. We taught a series on Proverbs not too long ago, and one of the things that we said about the Proverbs is the Proverbs are not promises. They're not wooden promises that they're not if-then statements. If you are poor in spirit enough, then you will inherit a certain measure 
of the kingdom of God. Here's what they are. They are blessing statements. They're, I'd like for you to think of them in a couple of ways. The first is this. I want you to think about them like observations. You see this a lot in the book of Proverbs. You see this in Psalm 1, actually. Psalm 1, the entire psalm is what we would call a Macarion psalm, which is a psalm of observation. It's almost like looking and going, wow, that life right there is a life that looks like it's flourishing. And then reducing it backwards and going, why is it flourishing so much? Why is it experiencing the good life, the goodness of God? Why do these kinds of people seem to be so genuinely and authentically happy? And then when you reduce that back in Psalm 1, you find, oh my, they're, they're the people who resist the wicked. They're the people who don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Those kinds of people are the people who meditate on the law day and night, and they seem to be people who are always prospering spiritually. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because this kind of life or this way of being in the world is the kind of life that experiences the flourishing of God. It's an inspirational vision for the wise way of being in the world. Here's another way I'd like to frame this. I believe the Beatitudes are a divine invitation of grace. They are a divine invitation of grace in order for you and I to orient our lives in the way of his kingdom. I want you to think less about what am I doing? How am I doing the Beatitudes? And I want you to think more about how is my heart oriented toward this way of living in the kingdom in the world? See, you can't work yourself into a way of being, but you can partner with the Holy Spirit's work as you orient yourself into this kind of life in the kingdom. Listen, life will bring you plenty of opportunities to be poor of spirit, especially when you fast. Life will bring you plenty of opportunities to empty yourself. And when those opportunities come, if you will see that in that moment, God is, an ex is extending an invitation for a fresh and unique grace in that moment, your life will become oriented to what it means to be poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Here's some examples here. When you find yourself poor, like literally, physically, tangibly, economically poor, or and or when you find yourself poor in spirit, God, I am unable. I'm bumping up against my limitations. I'm trying to follow you, but I find that this flesh inside of me is so strong. It's like what Paul says in Romans 7, where he says, I desire to do good, but evil is right there with me. Everybody experienced that before? Like, oh, I'm trying, but I just feel so incapable. That's called poverty of spirit. It's recognizing, God, I'm absolutely unable to live the righteous life as you define the righteous life without your help. I need your help, God. That's poverty of spirit. And when you find yourself in, in this poverty of spirit, this is what you should do, friends. Look for the divine opportunity of grace. Look for the divine opportunity to orient your heart around becoming more poor in spirit and the kingdom of God is yours. Another way of looking at this is for those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Why, why, why are those who mourn blessed? Why, why are they favored? Why, why do they flourish in the eyes of God and in the kingdom? Well, the scripture says because they will be comforted. But I thought you always comfort me, God. God does always comfort us. 
He is always faithful to us. He is always attending to us and present to us. However, what I would say is, for those who mourn in God, he is uniquely present to comfort us. So he's always present to comfort us. But for those who are brokenhearted, for those who are grieving at the state of the world, for those who bring their brokenheartedness to God and invite him into that, there is a divine moment of grace where he's uniquely comforting you. And you will receive something that you would not have otherwise because the scripture says, blessed are those who mourn. And those who mourn in God, it's not arbitrary. It's not just mourning over you know, random things. God, God cares deeply about everything that we're going through in life. But what he's asking us to do is to invite us or to invite him into the broken spaces of our lives. And this is what the Psalms are all about. The Psalms teach us how to mourn in God. So let's walk through these things a little slowly. We're going to probably just get through two of these today. Uh, If I go really, really quickly, I'll hit three, but I'm really interested in hitting these two. So who are the poor in spirit? Well, the poor in spirit in Matthew's gospel are a little bit different than the poor in Luke's gospel. We're going to start with Matthew's gospel. The poor in spirit is the person who by the grace of God recognizes his or her utter dependence for God and places their full trust in God for life and for redemption. Very simply, this means that the person who is poor in spirit recognizes, God, I need you. I need you for my provision. I need you to live the God kind of life. I need you to want you. I don't even want you without you. There is no good thing inside of me apart from you. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 3. Some of you may recognize this. Paul said in Romans 3.10, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God because without the spirit of God, you and I don't want God. Without the spirit of God working inside of us to draw us and to regenerate us and to call us and to work in our lives and to transform us, there is no good thing inside of us apart from God. And the sooner we can recognize that, the sooner the kingdom of God is ours. Because the sooner we have eyes to see that, we realize, oh God, I'm bankrupt spiritually without you. I need you. I need you. I am utterly dependent upon you. Look at this verse here. This references actually some of the Old Testament background here. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 5, Scripture says, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. So then, God, how can we be saved? Listen to the desperation in that. Like, I do well for a season, and then I just fall back into it. Like, I feel like that's almost, in a lot of ways, been the journey of my Christian life. And the moment I feel like I've got my handle on it, it's like the moment I feel like I'm crushing the parenting game, like I just lose it. You're like, dude, what? The moment I feel like, man, I'm I'm doing great with this Christian thing, and then I just blow it, right? And part of that is because the moment I fail to be utterly dependent and to embrace my dependence in God. It's in that very moment that I fail, that I fall. 
I wish I had the video of this years ago. Christian and I were sitting in a church service, and there was a pastor that showed a clip of this. And you guys remember the old school Superman? The old school, not the gorgeous Henry Cavill, sexiest man alive Superman, right? We're talking Christopher Reeves, right? Eh, not so great, okay? More, more Clark Kent than Superman, right? Right? And there's this scene where he's like teaching Lois Lane. They're flying together. Right? And it's so, it's so comical. Like they're flying together. And there's this moment when she forgets that the only way that she's flying is because Superman's holding her. And like she starts to actually, you know, she's like clinging in the beginning. And he's like, hey, I got you. And then she just starts to like go out and out and out. And then she lets go because she's thinking, oh man, look at me. I'm doing this. And the moment she lets go, she begins to plummet to the ground. We are absolutely Lois Lanes in, this, in the Christian faith. That's who we are, right? And if, if, if we forget that the only way there is anything good or righteous or humble or joyful inside of me is because we've got Superman holding us up, carrying us, making us more like him. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Amen. It's good for us to remind ourselves of that. Now, I know we're, we're in the, you know, take time for you, and we're in the self-comfort culture, and we're in the, you're really good, you've got this culture. And like, listen, y'all, we are utterly, despicably incapable, insufficient, and our righteousness is like filthy rags without the righteousness of God. Amen transforming us. In the New Testament, John the Revelator says it like this. John is exiled onto the island of Patmos, and he receives a vision, and Jesus is showing up to him. And Jesus has a specific word for these seven churches of that time. And in Revelation chapter 3, we find, beginning in verse 15, this is what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds. And here's what I know about you. You're neither hot nor are you cold. And I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot, you're not cold, you're passive, you're indifferent, you're, I'm okay, I've got this. I'm, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Like, you know, I'm not crushing the game, but, you know, I'm also not doing what they're doing. I'm good enough. Like, my spirituality is good enough. I read enough of the word. Like, I go to the church, I, I'm there. This is what he's speaking to. Like, just nominal boring, going through the motions, Christianity, zombie Christianity. That's what this is, going through the motions. So he says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, you say, and this is very important, you guys, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. I want you to think about that. Like the heart and the spirit behind that statement is, I am self-sufficient and I am independent. I have everything that I need, which, by the way, is the sin of the garden, and it's the temptation of the desert. Oh, what do I mean by that? So Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the enemy comes to them, and he says, listen, you don't have to obey God. You don't have to listen to everything that he does. You don't have to follow his wisdom. In fact, if you'll just do this, if you'll just step out of bounds, if you'll just follow your own gut, if you'll just follow your own leading, if you follow your own inclination, what you'll find is you actually have what it takes. You can be your own God. You don't need the government. You don't need him telling you to tell you what to do. You got this. Adam and Eve go, 
Heck yeah, we do, right? Who needs him anyways telling me what to do all the time? And now every broken piece of society in our individual lives can all be traced back to that one moment where humanity says, I would rather live independent of God than to live dependent on his goodness and his wisdom. All, all brokenness of humanity and society. We find this is kind of recycled in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is in the wilderness and the enemy comes to him. And what does he say? He says, if you really are the son of God, hey, 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 see these stones here? You're hungry. You've been fasting 40 days. Let's make this into bread, like good bread, like fresh hot non bread with like garlic and cheese on it, right? Like, you know, like good bread, right? Really good bread. Like, I know, yeah. I'm going to be gracious on you because I'm really good at my adjectives, you guys. And what does Jesus do? Jesus resists the temptation to become independent. Jesus resists the temptation to be powerful. Jesus resists the temptation to become self-sufficient. And you'll find that numerous times all throughout the Gospels, Jesus will say things like this, I can only do what I see my Father doing. That's the, like all of my life, all of my wisdom. You hear anything good out of me, it's only because I heard my Father say it. You see any miracle come out of my life, it's only because I got that special grace and empowerment and anointing from my Father. Jesus chose to become poor in spirit. In fact, what I hope that you get throughout the next several weeks, particularly while we're in the Beatitudes, is this. I hope that every one of us sees squarely that Jesus is the absolute embodiment of every single one of these Macarians. That Jesus completely embodies every one of these virtues. And there's a reason why, and we're going to go there here in a second. Verse 17 of Revelation 3 again, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I'm independent, I'm self-sufficient, I got this, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize... Everybody say, I don't realize. realize. You do not realize that you are wretched, that you are pitiful, that you are poor, that you are blind, and that you are naked. So I counsel you, come, listen, listen to my wisdom. You're Proverbs 8 in this. Wisdom is calling aloud in the streets. Come, those of you who are simple-minded, listen to the wisdom that I have for you. I counsel you, buy from me gold that is refined in the fire, persecution, adversity, opposition, so that you can become rich in me, so that you can become rich in the way that is truly rich, which is what? It is the gold that is refined in the fire. Peter refers to this as our faith, so that your faith, which is refined in the fire, may be purer than gold. Buy from me a different kind of faith. Buy from me a faith that, can, that cannot be shaken by the opposition and persecution of the world. Buy from me white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and buy from me a salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. In Luke's gospel, we find that Luke kind of knocks off that latter clause, poor in spirit. And Luke's gospel says it like this. He says, blessed are the poor in Luke 6 verse 20. And what Luke is after, his agenda here is for helping people to recognize and realize how close God's heart is to the poor. That God loves and cares for the poor in a way that most of us who've never touched that level of poverty could never imagine. So when we say blessed are the poor, period, not poor in spirit, but blessed are the poor, what are you referring to, Luke? Very simply, he's referring to the economically and physically impoverished. 
He's talking about those who experience oppression, which are the majority of the Israelites. The majority of Israel's story is this right here. In fact, the word poor there is actually a reference. The Old Testament background here is there is a certain group of people called the Anawim, the Anawim. And they were a group of economically disadvantaged Jews who were waiting and longing for the justice of the Messiah. They were the poor of the poor in the society. In fact, many scholars believe that our boy Simeon was an Anawim. It's one of the reasons why he longed and waited for the consolation of Israel, which when I read that, y'all know I got a special place in my heart for my boy Simeon. And I'm like, wow. Uh, Anna, Luke chapter 2. Remember Anna? Fasted and prayed in the temple. She was married for seven years. Her husband died, and she lives the rest of her days in the temple, fasting and praying. Many believe she was an Anawim. She was poor. And so she gave her life to being basically a prayer intercessor in the house of the Lord. And then many scholars believe, and this would make, make sense based on how Luke uh, describes Mary and Joseph were probably on a whim. They were poor. This is why when Mary is um, reflecting on the goodness of God, I'm going to skip a couple of verses here, guys. I'm going to go straight to Luke chapter 1. Mary in the Magnificat says this in Luke 146. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Verse 52, she goes on and she says, you have brought down rulers from their thrones, but you have lifted up the humble, the economically disadvantaged, the oppressed, the poor. You have filled the hungry with good things, but you have sent the rich away empty. Whenever you read through the Psalms and when you read through the major and the minor prophets, you're going to see this theme of the poor and the humble and the afflicted and the oppressed. And over and over and over again, God is saying two things. Number one, I care about these people. And number two, I want you to care about these people. I care about the poor. I care about those who are disadvantaged. I care about those who have been taken advantage of. I care about those who have been abused by systems, and I want you to take care of it. I don't want you to argue about it. I don't want you to just engage in debates. I don't want you to turn this into a philosophical or political theory. I want you to care for who I care about, and I care about the poor. We find this in Hosea, or I'm sorry, Amos. I did it again, Josh. Uh, we find this in Amos chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Now, I do believe that there's probably some work here that we've got to do because of the way the culture likes to co-op words and likes to, you know, take those words and define those words. But we, should, we shouldn't ignore these kinds of scriptures because of the way that the culture is leveraging those words. These words don't belong to the culture. They belong to the Lord. And the healthiest response is to say, God, teach me. Teach me. You care for the poor. I want to care for the poor. Teach me, to, teach me how to do this in a way that demonstrates the goodness and the love and the compassion and the justice of God. And in so doing, friends, listen, the kingdom of God comes to the world. Amen. Proverbs says it like this in Proverbs 21, verse 13. He says, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor 
will also cry and not be answered. I'm going to skip over here a couple of verses, and I want to demonstrate here for a few minutes how Jesus embodies poverty in spirit. Now, we could, we could just outline Jesus' life. The fact that he was born a human is the greatest demonstration that he embraces poverty of spirit. He abandons glory. He abandons beauty, and he abandons power. In fact, I want to read you a couple of things I just wrote in my journal as I was thinking about this. Jesus had no rights. And he had no rights because he laid down his rights. Like, you and I, we have no rights, yet we demand everything. Jesus had all rights, yet he demanded nothing. Instead, he laid down his rights, and he makes requests, and he extends invitations. Notice that Jesus never strong strong arms us with his power. He lays down all of his rights, he demands nothing, and he extends invitations. This is the way of the kingdom. So many scriptures we find that not only did Jesus become human, he was born into a poor family. The full nature of his identity was kept hidden. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says it like this, even though Jesus was a son, and the implication there was even though he was the son of God himself, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And the moment he was made perfect, he then became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. Now, probably the quintessential verse around the poverty of Jesus is found in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5, we read, In your relationship then with one another, regardless of the nature of that relationship, regardless of the hierarchy of power of that relationship, here's the New Testament wisdom. To live into being poor of spirit, this is what the New Testament teaches us. It says this is how you should treat one another. No caveats, no qualifiers. This is how you should interact with one another. Have the same mindset as Jesus, who even though he was God himself, he did not consider his equality with God something that he would use to his own advantage. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Like if I, got, if I got power to leverage to my own advantage... The inclination of Jay Duncan is to use it to my own advantage. And I'm hoping that I'm just showing you that that's in your heart too. We like power and we like using and leveraging and manipulating our power somehow, some way to our own advantage, to our own benefit, to our own status, to our own self-aggrandizement, to our own self of self-importance in the world. We're wired this way without God, you guys. But Jesus shows us, and we have to understand this. Why did Jesus do this? Because Jesus comes. I'm going to go back to Philippians 2. But Jesus comes to show us this. Guys, I'm going to teach you how to be human. You don't even know how to be human. But Jesus is the fullest version of humanity that the world has ever seen. So when we want to know what it means to be human, we don't look to the culture to define what it means to be human for us. We look to the one who has only ever been fully human. That is Jesus, right? Right? And so when Jesus says, if you want to live truly happy in the deepest parts of your being, and if you want to live a life that experiences the flourishing of the kingdom of God, I'm going to show you how to do it. 
And this is how he does it. He doesn't just teach us about it. He becomes and incarnates and embodies that very thing so that we can watch his life and go, my God, that's how to do it. We empty ourselves of our power. We empty ourselves of our privilege. We empty ourselves of our self-entitlement. We empty ourselves of our rights. We, th- th- this, you, this is how we do it? Yes, this is how you do it. Watch, I'm going to leave everything, and I'm going to show you that the fullest amount of flourishing can happen in your life when you choose to lay this down, trust in God, depend on his resources. Then you will experience something that the world can never take away from you. This is the way to live. This is the key to life, poverty of spirit, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something that he would use to his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing. Some translations say he emptied himself. And when you hear that, what I want you to hear, I want you to hear empty, and I want you to hear bankrupt, and I want you to hear resourceless, and I want you to hear poverty, and I want you to hear poverty of spirit. This is Jesus. Jesus fully embraced poverty of spirit so that the kingdom of God would be his. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here, a couple more minutes here if we could. Let's go to those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Friends, there have been volumes that have been written on the topic of poverty of spirit alone. Like, I mean, if we wanted to really, like, do this thing, we could take 12 weeks and just talk about poverty of spirit. And it would kill us, but it would probably be amazing for us. <laughs> our friends and our family would love us. <laughs> Maybe not in the beginning, right? <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Notice that in every one of these beatitudes, these are things that are counterintuitive. These are not the things that we would naturally choose for ourselves. We would not choose poverty of spirit. We would not choose economic oppression or disadvantagement. We would not choose it. We would not choose to live a life of mourning. Every single one of these beatitudes, what you'll actually find too, as we walk through this the next few weeks, is you'll find a counterfeit or a counterpart that the world offers to us. You don't have to be poor in spirit, be powerful, be strong. You don't have to mourn, put on a happy face, be happy, be happy, right? You don't have to be persecuted. You don't have to be meek. Fight for your rights. Like every single one of these beatitudes, you will find the antithesis or the opposite in the culture. And this is why one of the mantras or the great themes of the New Testament is don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, to the way of thinking of the world, to the seductive allure of the world, but be transformed by orienting your life to this kingdom way which will bring about flourishing. What does it mean to mourn those who grieve in their experiences of tragedy, injustice, and death? It's very simple. Blessed are those who mourn are the brokenhearted. Those who life has dealt them a bad set of cards. Those who they were going along and things were happy, and then in a moment, everything got upended and changed, and it was completely out of their control. Blessed are those who mourn, those who've experienced unthinkable things that the world has handed to them, or and or who lament the brokenness of the world, and in so doing, reach out in compassion 
to others. The Old Testament background of those who mourn is found in a couple of places. I'm going to look in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 verse 1 tells us that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the gospel of the good news to who? To the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Friends, every time we are launched out of this house, you are being sent to the poor and the poor in spirit, and you are being commissioned to go to those who are brokenhearted. Whether or not they are believers or not, God has anointed you to go and sit with the brokenhearted and to bind up their hearts, to proclaim freedom for the captive, to proclaim release from prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, verse 2, and the day of vengeance, watch this, to comfort all who mourn. Verse 3, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning. God is near to the brokenhearted. Let me say two things here as we wrap this up. Number one, it is important for us to understand Christologically, the incarnation, Jesus becomes every one of these things in the Beatitudes in order to redeem them. He becomes these things in order to redeem them. Why? Because what Jesus becomes, he redeems, and what he redeems is redeemable. Every single one of us, whether you realize it or not, the longer you live in life, you will experience one, if not all of these things. You will experience either poverty physically or being poor in spirit. You will experience a season or a time or a moment where you mourn. You will experience a moment where you are powerless to the powers that are around you. You will experience moments where you find yourself seeking for the justice of God to, to be vindicated in the world. You may find yourself being persecuted. What's the point of all that? Without Jesus becoming those things, those experiences of yours, they're arbitrary. They're futile. They're worthless. There's nothing redemptive or hope-filled in your mourning if Jesus doesn't become the one who mourns. And here's what I want you to hear. Jesus does not just mourn with us. Jesus becomes the mourning one. There's a difference there, and someday you'll see this. Jesus doesn't stand as the one who has it all together next to us and go, oh, I'm so, so that's, that's really bad. They're there. Chin up. It's going to be okay. That's not Jesus, right? So Jesus doesn't just mourn. Listen, he becomes the mourning one. Jesus becomes the one, New Testament tells us, that Jesus became poor. He became poor. He emptied himself. He became the persecuted one. He became the meek one. He embodied this in its totality in order to redeem it. Because what Jesus becomes, he redeems. And what he redeems is redeemable. So how do we respond to this? I focused less on, and Jonathan, you can come forward. I appreciate you. I've focused less on trying to muscle up and power my way into embodying these things. And I found myself praying this prayer, friends. I wrote this this morning. I said, Jesus, I say yes to your invitation to orient my life in the way of your kingdom. And if you would, if you would just... For a moment here, close your eyes and hold out your hands. I just want to pray this a few times. Jesus, 
I say yes to your invitation to orient my life in the way of your kingdom. Lord, I recognize and I realize that when you became each and every one of these things, you made it possible for me to experience these things that happened to me in a different way, in a way that is redemptive, in a way that may not make sense now, but can make sense and will make sense in the future because you chose to be poor in spirit, because you chose to be the one who mourns. Jesus, you embodied for us the way of the kingdom. And you extend to each and every one of us an invitation to be oriented into this way of life. And Lord, I'm asking right now, by by the grace and by the power and by the revelation of your spirit, that we would say yes, orient our lives to this way of life in your kingdom. Shape our hearts in this way. And we believe that obedience will follow. We want to live our lives in the way that you showed us how to live. And God, today, I wasn't planning on this, but Lord, I just, I repent for power grabbing. And God, I repent, God, for positions and titles. And I I repent, Father God, for, for looking down, for despising those who embody these things. I just, I sense the Spirit of the Lord is saying this, friends. He's saying this. The Beatitudes teach you to not despise when life brings opportunities for you to embrace poverty of spirit. When life brings opportunities for you to mourn that, don't despise that. Don't resist that. Don't fight against that. And don't despise those who are experiencing those seasons of their life as well. Because God is present and he is inviting us to experience a unique grace of his kingdom when we are in these moments. Altar workers, you can come forward. Friends, I want to invite you to stand this morning. Guys, we have a room full of people in our overflow who weren't able to listen to a live band or listen to us worship today. For those of you guys who are in overflow, man, we love you. Thanks for joining us. I believe they're having communion in that room as well. They, they might be coming to join us. But with all that being said, man, we love you guys in the overflow. It's just going to be a few more weeks. We're going to break this down into two services. Guys, thanks for squeezing in tight. Um, it's cozy. It's good. You're like, you're like, yeah, right, no one's around you, pal. <laughs> uh, it's good to be together in the Lord. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Friends, I want to invite you today to the table of the Lord. And as you come, I pray that the Spirit of God would breathe afresh on you today to invite you into this way of life and that the kingdom of God would be yours, that he would reveal the gospel to you again. And when we come together and receive our elements, I'm going to proclaim the gospel over us, and then we will partake of the table together. You are welcome to come to the table of the Lord today.